If you will turn to 1 Corinthians 12, we'll be there starting at verse 12 today. There is a lot of talk of diversity in our day, in our world. Companies aim for diversity in their hiring practices. Sports teams aim for diversity in their coaching staff. Schools aim for diversity in their admissions. And yet this is happening at a time when our culture is perhaps as divided and disunified as ever. Now, my point is not to get into the value of how our, how our world approaches diversity. You can debate that amongst yourselves. My point is to say that surely these two observations, this press for diversity and the disunity in our society, are not unrelated. Because diversity, apart from some form of unity, only divides. Diversity in a vacuum, as a sole virtue, just be different, apart from being combined with other virtues like unity and love and forgiveness and long-suffering, only separates people. If diversity is to be the beautiful thing that it can be, and it can be, there also has to be some something for us to unify around, some common ground that ties us and binds us together and causes us to, to love and serve and pursue and bear with one another. Not in part because we are so different. And this helps us understand God's vision and goal for the church. These last couple weeks, we've been going through 1 Corinthians 12 on spiritual gifts. Uh, the idea that God equips his people to operate and serve um, in a diversity of ways. God's Spirit manifests himself among God's people in a diversity of ways with a diversity of gifts. Uh, to put it another way, we look different, we think and act different, we feel and desire things differently. Even as you just consider the hundred or so people that gather here with us as a church, you quickly realize we have many differences. Some of us love to feel things and feel closest to God when we are feeling things. Some of us love to think and ponder deeply things and feel closest to God when we're doing that. Some of us doubt and struggle and question all the time, wrestling with things, and some of us find faith comes very, pretty easy. Some of us love to work with our hands and, and to serve and, and get involved by doing things tangibly that involve our bodies. Some of us are very concerned about showing mercy to the needy. And if you stay at a distance and just observe all of this, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, perhaps an easy thing to say, wow, that's awesome. But once you start working with one another and realizing that people operate differently, it becomes challenging at times. And apart from any unifying source, this great diversity threatens to divide us, just as it does in our world today. And so as Paul goes through and talks about the various and diverse ways that God works in and among his people, he is repeatedly emphasizing unity and oneness. And not a unity and oneness just as a general idea, just as an empty idea, a nice idea. We should just be unified. 
No. Uh, mere unity is just as helpless as mere diversity by itself. No, the unity that the church relies on is unity in the common confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus as ultimate authority over all of life. Jesus as the greatest evidence of the goodness and grace of God. Jesus as our greatest boast and, and hope and comfort. And so a couple weeks ago, we saw that Paul began this section um, saying, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So he puts forth this confession, Jesus is Lord, and he says, the way that you know who is of God, who is a part of the church, who is truly spiritual, who you are called to love and serve and commit yourself to, is do they confess Jesus as Lord and Savior? And does that confession there bear fruit in their lives? Does it seem to be genuine? That's the unity that grounds our diversity in the church. Uh, the church is to be this picture of unity within diversity. And all of it grounded in the gracious work of Jesus and our confession of him. And so today, in today's passage, Paul's going to use this metaphor of a body, of our physical bodies, to unpack this and apply it more. Perhaps you're familiar with this. It's a common, uh, it's, it's a popular metaphor um, for the church. So we're going to begin in verse 12. Paul begins to unpack this and explain this, this metaphor. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So just to unpack this a little bit, um, he's given us this image, this picture of our, our physical bodies as one unified body with many parts, right? Eyes, ears, mouth, nose, hands, feet. And all of these parts are not independent, isolated, kind of going their own way, doing their own thing, working towards their own purpose. You know, the, the, the arm doesn't have any grand ambitions to separate himself from this annoying, restrictive body and make it on its own in this world. The feet aren't attempting to, to cut themselves off and go off and do their own thing. No, all of the diverse parts of the body are working together to help the body be healthy and functional. So that's the picture. And then Paul says, so it is with... Now, what do you expect him to say there? What's he comparing the body to? You can actually, you can answer if you want. The church. So it is with the church. But that's not actually what he says, right? He says, so it is with Christ. Paul makes such a connection. Now, he's talking about the church. But Paul makes such a connection between Christ and the church that he can sometimes use the, the terms interchangeably. He'll go on to say, you, the church, are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. So Christ is represented and witnessed and embodied in the world through the church, through us. And that's how God intended it knowing full well that we would often do a 
miserable job at that. This also means that if you identify with Christ, call yourself a Christian, you are necessarily a part of his body, the church. You, you were not called and saved to belong to Christ, but then ignore and reject his body. Just as with our, our physical members of our body, there's no place for a Christian to get grand ambitions of separating himself from the church and going off and doing his own thing because, well, the church is sometimes a difficult group of people to get along with. No, being a Christian means belonging to the church, Christ's body, God's people. That's how God designed it. And this unity in Christ is created and applied by the Spirit, as Paul says in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. He says, For in one Spirit we were, made, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Do you notice how many times Paul says the word one? Again, he's emphasizing unity, oneness, sameness of purpose, connection. We are one. And we are one as we are baptized into one body, in the Spirit baptized into one body, he says. Now, this is probably not referring to water baptism. This is probably metaphorically referring to the regenerating work, the, the new birth that the Spirit does when somebody puts their faith in Jesus. Water baptism is a sign of this, but the real change happens when God gives you his spirit as you truly believe and confess him as uh, Jesus as Lord. This means that your salvation and the new life that it brings doesn't hinge completely on your decision or your continuing resolve to keep up that decision. Do you understand that? That your salvation and the new life it brings doesn't completely hinge on your decision and your resolve to keep up that decision. But your salvation, if genuine, relies on God's Spirit in you, strengthening and equipping and leading you which is great news that we don't rely completely on our strength. We work in his strength. And then Paul says that this baptism in the spirit is for Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. In other words, your status in this world carries no weight on your membership and participation in the church. Your status, your, your worth, your riches or poverty, your health or sickness, your acceptability in this world carries no weight on your membership and participation in this church. We surely could do a sermon just unpacking that. If we were to, to apply these categories today, this is like saying it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church, have always been in the church, and feel comfortable in the church, and comfortable among God's people, like the Jews. Or it doesn't matter if you've never considered yourself of God's people, had little concern for God, and figured he had little concern for you, like the Gentiles. Likewise, it doesn't matter if you are a nobody in the eyes of this world, have little to offer in the way of wealth or poverty or 
service or talents, a slave, a servant. And it doesn't matter if you have much to offer and have wealth and power and respect in this world. None of this counts for anything before God and within the church. What matters is that you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and through his spirit are baptized into one body. Um, we try to capture some of this by, by the use of, our, use of the phrase gospel-centered. Uh, when we say gospel-centered and we say that we want to be gospel-centered in all we do, we are saying that we want to keep the saving work from, of God and our confession of that front and center and to be the, the, the root, the ground of everything else we do. We want to be really careful not to make anything else the basis of our unity. Things like a particular style of worship, certain political or cultural causes, a certain personality type, a certain, certain common interests or life stages. We want to be careful not to attach ourselves to any particular trend and just become the church of that trend or be the church of a certain demographic and certain kind of people. We want to be diverse in many ways because our unity is not in any of those things, but in our confession of Jesus and our living under his authority. And we want to allow for and welcome all the diversity that Scripture allows for. The God purposely creates among his people to be a beautiful thing. And we do that by starting with and continually grounding ourselves in our common confession of Jesus as, as Lord. That doesn't mean we don't talk about other things. There's lots of things that flow out of that, but none of those things become the ground of our unity. So Paul continues to unpack this metaphor. Verse 14, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. For if a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, now just imagine that for a minute, like that's supposed to be ridiculous. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So we know that one of the, one of the realities, one of the issues going on in the church of Corinth that Paul is writing here to is the elevating of certain roles and gifts in the church as more important more valuable to the church. Uh, for them, this mainly ha this had to do with the gift of tongues. There was, there was the thinking that those with this gift were more valuable to the church and those without it were less valuable, almost like a class system in the church. And so Paul will tackle this erroneous and dangerous thinking from, one of, from two perspectives. The first is what we just read. He first, he considers the point of view of the one who feels inferior, of the one who feels that they are left out, that they don't have something as valuable to offer. 
Perhaps you've felt feelings of inferiority, insufficiency, jealously as you, as you consider the church and, and, and what you bring. And you perhaps think, if only I had what they have. If only I could do what, what they could do. Paul says, imagine if that were the case with a physical body. What if all the parts of the body performed the same function? Again, the gigantic eye. It could see really well, presumably, but couldn't walk, couldn't taste, smell, hear, reach out and grab things. It would be an incredibly unhealthy body if you could even call it a body. And even if there were an argument that the eye is the most important part of the body, the eye relies completely on all the other members of the body to function well. Similarly, a church like ours, and every church, needs all of the various giftings and, and roles and contributions and insights that God sovereignly ordains and provides to be a healthy body. Paul makes the same point a little bit later on, but in a different way. I want to go cover these verses, and then we'll come back. So jump to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ. There's that phrase. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Now, we're not going to talk about all these specific gifts today because we did that last week. Um, and last week we saw that there's no definitive, exhaustive list of spiritual gifts in Scripture, including this one. But what is Paul's point in asking these questions? They're rhetorical questions, right? The answer is... No. No, not everyone plays the same part. Not everyone has the same gift. Not everyone is an eye or a foot or a hand or a mouth. And so when we feel insufficient and insuperior and, and jealous about what gifts we have versus what other, other gifts others have, wish we could do what others have, contribute with what others do, remember that the body needs diversity to function well. And God provides for this diversity. We, you have the image in here of God or, ordaining the body to, to function with all of these different parts. Same in the church. We know that God cares for the church. Surely God provides what the church needs to function well. And he does that in part by equipping and calling you to serve in a diversity of ways. Perhaps the part that you play is not very visible or doesn't seem very influential compared to others. The point here is that visible or not, up front or behind the scenes, small or large, every part matters. The various giftings and experiences and insights and, and roles and passions that you bring to this church contribute to the overall health of the church. So very clearly, 
Let me say to you, don't minimize God's desire and will to use you. Don't minimize the benefit that you can bring to others. That's what God is saying. But there's another part to this. Paul then shifts to the second perspective, where he speaks from the point of view who, of those who feel superior, of those who feel like their, their gifting, their, their role, their function is more important than others. So verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So when you are tempted to think that your role your knowledge, your gifting, your functioning in the church is more important, is most important, and look down on others and minimize others, remember that the healthy functioning of the church is not fully dependent on you, such that you don't need others. Again, the eye may play an important role, but an eye without the rest of the body is not a functioning body, is quite helpless. So if you put these two perspectives together, we see that we ought to have, and we can have, both confidence and humility. Confidence that we belong and have a part to play in the building up of the church and in the church fulfilling its purpose. And yet a humility that we can't carry that weight on our shoulders. A humility that we need the presence and contributions of others in this. No one is so gifted to carry the weight of the church on their shoulders. A church cannot function merely with the gift of teaching or helping or administrating. For example, I, I realize that my role is perhaps the most visible in the church, as is a pastor's role often. I get up here and teach most weeks. I, along with the other elders, help make some of the decisions. I do a lot of the communication. But nothing about this role or any leadership role guarantees a healthy functioning church. No, the ministry and the discipleship and the love and the service that goes on in a church amongst its members is equally, if not more important, than the equipping and encouraging that the leaders do of that ministry. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He says, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that is pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, God's, the work of God's church doesn't just happen up here, doesn't just happen on Sundays or in elder meetings or among those with official roles. The work of God's church, if we are to be a healthy church, happens among all of us all the time. On Sundays and throughout the weeks, throughout the week, in formal and informal ways, in conversations, in 
inviting others over for a meal, in asking questions, in reading the Word together, in pursuing one another, sharing with one another, using our various spiritual gifts to serve one another. Again, as Paul said in verse 27, you are the body of Christ. You. You, the church, you who confess Jesus are the church. You are not merely a consumer of a product, a passive bystander of some event, a recipient of some benefits and enjoyment of the entertainment that we provide for you. No, you are the church. And your ministry and presence and service and wisdom and insight and personality and giftings as God works in and through you constitute the work and ministry and health of the church. We have a membership process in part to just make this very clear, to functionally call and equip you to be the church, to take ownership and responsibility for the church. And as we do this, as we flesh this out, it, lead, it, it affects how we, we see each other and affects how we treat one another. And that's what Paul ends with in the last section we'll look at, starting in the second half of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In other words, this idea, this truth, that everyone matters and has something to contribute, but no one matters so much that they don't need the others, should lead to unity. The diversity that God brings and, and brings about in the church is no excuse for division. We have all been purchased and saved by the sheer mercy of God through the blood of Christ. We have all come to boast and find our life and joy and hope and comfort in Christ. We have all come to submit our lives and our plans and everything about us, our ambitions and desires to the good will of God. And so how could those connected to Christ like this, living under the authority of Christ like this, exclude and cut themselves off from others? connected to Christ like this? How could we not seek to care for one another? Now, practically, we know this is a struggle at times. Perhaps you struggle to see how a fellow church member brings any benefit to your life. And you fail to draw near to them and welcome them and serve them. Perhaps we can do this as a church. Certainly we can. We can fail to recognize and, and welcome in a fellow believer, and they are functionally cut off from the church and feel that they don't have a place. Well, this, just like cutting off an arm or cutting off a leg, is hurting the church and is hurting the display of God's glory. 
We ought to have the attitude of, of, as Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And apply this, no matter who they are, what they have to offer, how little they personally benefit us, how easy or difficult they are to love, we are one with them. We are one body. And in this, there is room for neither jealousy or pride. Just like we are enabled to be both confident and humble, there is room for neither jealousy or pride. We can rejoice in how God works through others without getting jealous, and we can be thankful for how God works in us without getting proud. And as we do this, as we display this unity within diversity, we proclaim the sufficiency of God's grace of Jesus given for us. We proclaim and we show that that is a sufficient grounding to come together and to fight for unity for. Especially when it's hard, especially when there are many things that tempt to divide us. We show that the grace of God in Christ is sufficient to gather and unite us together despite our differences. And that is meant to be a beautiful thing. And one of the ways that we tangibly do this each week is as we take communion. I've said it before, but in communion, we aren't merely recognizing and remembering our unity with Christ, but also our unity with one another. Um, if you go back to chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, Paul will tell the Corinthians to examine themselves before they take, they take communion. And we often take that to mean, well, I should just consider my heart and you know, how I'm doing with God. And you should do that. But in context, Paul's really talking about the Corinthians examining themselves, plural, how they're doing with one another. Because they were being really selfish in how they taught, took communion. Because communion is a picture of our unity, not just to Christ, but with one another. In ways greater than we realize, we belong to one another, are bound to one another, and are brought together to benefit one another. And we show that in communion, we show that in various ways during the week, and we can pray, God, accomplish that in and through us. So if you've trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to take this with us. If you are not plugged into a church where you are a part of the body of Christ and, and actively functioning and serving and giving as part of the body of Christ and being served and, and ministered to, then we encourage you to do that as well. Let's pray.